Ah, the weekend and a busy old day on your radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. I, in my innocence as a young reporter, very young reporter, conducted the whole interview beside a waterfall. A very noisy waterfall. So I had Whispering Burt Bacharach, the Ivy Gardens waterfall and a career that could have withered on the vine there and then. And thankfully it didn't. And Burt Bacharach went on to be a very successful songwriter. <laughs> and immediately the calf is up and standing in a half an hour and looking to feed within an hour and a half, no problem. It's nature magnificent. I didn't know that when you're lowering a flag that's a half mast, you bring it up to full mast force and you come back down again. A flag is I'm a, 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 a flag is I'm going to have to go to flag skill, yeah. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll start on the live line. Neve called Joe about an anonymous letter she received about our national flag that she's been hanging from her window. Basically explaining how we have let our flag go to rack and ruin and how shameful we should be. No. So, so you um, have they're saying you have a you're flying our national we have, flag. We have a tricolour hanging out one of the bedroom windows. Oh it's hanging out the window. Okay. Yeah. Um, we've uh, always done it. Okay. All of my family have. Um, so basically received a letter yesterday stating by one of the residents that they're appalled of the condition of it and that we should be ashamed of ourselves. And well, they say they, they say they say a fellow Clover Hill resident, but there's there's no there's no proof that it is. It could be anybody. No, saying that's that true. true. How big is the Clover Hill estate? There'd be about a hundred houses in it. Okay, so it'd be four or five hundred people. Um, needless to say, you were totally within your rights to do this. It's a ty- it was a type letter. However, as an Irish national and a proud citizen of our country, I am appalled by the state yeah. of disrepair and discoloration to which you have allowed our, in italics, national flag and colours uh, deteriorate. Why, why do you fl- fly, why do you hang the national flag from your bedroom window? Well, my great grandfather is yeah. Stephen Mulvey. Okay. Um, Stephen was one of the only guys in Bray. Well, I think there was two of them, but he was the main guy who went into the Easter Rebellion. Okay. On Easter Monday. Um, he cut all the communications from Bray into Dublin. Okay. And, and he presented himself in Saxel Street at the time. Yeah, I'm kind of straight, yeah. sent to Dublin Bread Company. Over on Westmoreland Street. Yeah, then he was okay. sent on to the Hibernian Bank. Yeah. And then he ended up in the GPO. He received a flesh wound in his leg. Yeah. And he made it out. They managed to get through Princess Street with 14 others. And a guy called Dazzler, a Dublin well-known guy, mm-hmm. and he managed to get them through the back of the building. And okay. a woman called Mrs Flanagan at yeah. Wilford Place she looked after him for two weeks before he made it back to Bray. So we do it in honour of him. Um, he He's our family hero. And we've always held out a flag. And there's nothing else about it. Like, that's, you know, we're proud of him. We're proud of what he's done. And how long have you had the national flag, the tricolour hanging out your bedroom window? Since I was about 18. So I don't. That doesn't tell me that, Neve. You sound about eighteen and a half. You're very young. You're very young. I'm forty-five. I'm forty-five. I'm forty-five on Valentine's Day. Oh, congratulations! Congratulations! Eighteen, <laughs> twenty, twenty-five. Uh, you're, you're, you're. So, so you've had it's, it's been up there for a long time. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, I've only lived here five years. Yeah, but it's been it's up the every first day. time I've ever received any. And do you take it no. in to yourself or your partner? Does it go into the Monday wash? No, we replace it when it gets tossed. Oh, you replace it? Yeah. Okay. Um, and you've yeah. never you've never had an objection before? Not one bit, no. Okay. Now, during, like, there, there is, I've come across this recently, there is a campaign for, for everyone to fly mm-hmm. our national flag on yeah. around St. Patrick's Day or indeed East, more importantly Easter the Easter weekend yeah. to, to commemorate the Easter Rising. Um, That's right. But then when we did this item about two years ago people said that the IRA had hijacked the flag and people, I put up a flag and people thought I supported killing up the north or whatever but I don't but, support killing one yeah, bit. Yeah of course, of course. No. But, but I'm just wondering is Given that it's now 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement around Easter this year, will a lot more people feel proud to hang or not to uh, display our national flag in their homes? Is I it, hope it, so. Is it becoming more normal? Well, as you head more rural, you see more flags. That's okay. the way, you know. Now, you know, there is, um, there is a whole, the Department of Defence are in charge of the flag and how, yeah. it, how it should be... Um, you know, how it should be displayed. The national flag is rectangular in shape, the width being twice its depth. Do you hang it sideways or lengthways? We've always just popped it out like someone would do on St. Patrick's Day. So Joe took a look at the national flag rules for display. The national flag, green, white and orange, uh, it should be rectangular, the width being twice its depth. The yeah. uh, three colours, green, white, are, are of equal size, vertically disposed. No flag or pennant should be flown above the national flag. You have nothing yeah. above it in your curtains. No. Like Superman or uh, no, 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 Elsa no. from Frozen <laughs> or anything. OK. With the national flag, when the national flag is carried with another flag or flags, it should be carried in a place of honour, i.e. on the marching right or on the left hand of an observer towards whom the flags are approaching. Work that one out. Um, while while being carried, the national flag should not be dipped by way of salute or compliment except to lead to to, to the dead during memorial ceremonies. Now your 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 flag is in honor of your your great uncle Stephen, who is dead. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um yeah. The national flag should not be draped on cars. Oh, God, Italian 90. Cars, trains, boats or other modes of transport should not be carried flat, should always be carried aloft and free, except when used to drape a coffin. On such an occasion, the green must be at the head of the coffin. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Okay, there's a lot of rules. Isn't there? Sure is, yeah. It cannot touch. The national flag should never be allowed to touch the ground when it's it's being dipped. Um. They, they give uh, and oh, okay. Here we go. In raising or lowering the national flag, uh, the national flag should not be allowed to touch the ground. While being yes. hoisted at the half mast, the flag should be first brought to the peak of the flagstaff, and then lowered to. I didn't know that. You don't go straight. I didn't know that. You yeah. go. You don't go to straight half mast. You go to full mast, and you come back down and again to half mast. Yeah. Okay. It should again be brought to the peak of the staff before it is finally lowered. I didn't know that when you're lowering a flag that's a half mast, you bring it up to full mast force and you come back down again. A flag is. Oh. A, a, a flag is I'm going to have to go to flag skill, yeah. Joe. <laughs> <laughs> have the army surrounded your house yet, Neve? 
not yet, no. <laughs> Will you check? Can you look I'll out the window? keep an wind- eye out, though. Can you look out the window? Where is there an army helicopter flying over your the house? flag authorities. <laughs> um, a, flag, a flag. A flag is at half mast in any position below the top of the staff, but never, didn't know this either, half mast is never below the middle point of the, of the staff. In other oh. words, the bottom of the flag should be at the middle point of the staff, not the top of the flag at the middle point. As a general okay. guide, as a general guide... That's a general guide. Yeah, no, I'm okay. giving you more. I hope you have a pen and paper handy. <laughs> as a general guide, the half-mast position may be taken as that where the top of the flag is the depth of the flag. God, you need to do honours mall and now to Use understand... Use geology that. or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> geology. Sarah, uh, on <laughs> mathematics <laughs> and ceremonial no it is a national flag and it is as you know and that's the reason you you hoist it how do, how uh, do we get away with Paddy's say then I know you know how do we fix okay. this okay <laughs> so this this person if it is it, this person who we don't know who says they're they're a neighbour and we, mm-hmm. well, we we don't know that either by a long shot. The condition, the condition to which you have allowed our national flag and colours deteriorate, Neve, is disgraceful. Quite frankly, mm-hmm. it shames your household and makes a mockery of any patriotism you might attend to profess. If you wish to permanently fly our national flag, may I suggest that you so show some respect for what it symbolises. Use an actual flagpole and fly a clean intact flag. Mm-hmm. Now, on Easter, I've taken over the last few years supporting uh, a flagpole in my garden uh, with a, with a, for the, the week or so with uh, tricolour. Would you, would you do a flagpole or could you do a, a makeshift flagpole? Well, I recently heard that you have to apply for permission, Joe. Oh, You'll have luck. to see. Oh, yeah. The army, the army is around you have house. to apply. No, I'm serious. <laughs> You'll yeah. have to apply for your flagpole. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I would consider so, a So what, what are you going to do? Are you going to take change it? We put out a new flag. Um, okay. I look up the regulations on flags. How much is a new flag to buy, by the way? That was about a fiver. And Miles was listening to Neve and he called Joe about the controversial subject of flags. Uh, Joe, how is it going? Long time no here. How are you getting on? And do you put up a flag? Oh, Joe, listen. You want to wait till the girls go for the World Cup. You'll see so many Irish flags up there. You'll be absolutely mesmerised, including the go roof. Go on, Miles. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'll have, I'll, I'll have the whole house green, white and gold. Yay. And by God, Joe, I'll tell you something. You're proud no of your country. Me, girls, I tell you. Now, oh. as... Joe, as I was speaking to you, I was taking down the flagpoles because the flag has gone a bit dilapidated due to the storm. I was putting up new flags for the for the St. Patrick's Day oh, in okay. the 17th of March. So, there you Did, go. Well, the, 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 the sting of today's call is... People objecting. Did anyone ever object to your flags, Miles? No, i tell you what they did object to. The Elvis flag. We're over in <laughs> Memphis one year and we brought back a, a, a state flag of Mississippi. Elvis? Yeah, with Elvis in the middle of it. And why did it? Why did it get all shook up over the because, Elvis flag? <laughs> well, you could say it, they could be saying in the Harpreck Hotel, Joe, because the, <laughs> see, it was the what's called it. It was the they said it was the Ku Klux Klan flag. That's what they said. It isn't. Yeah, that's what they said, and it had Elvis. And did, did they in the say? Did, did they say that to your face? Oh, straight up, straight up. Oh, Jason. We have a chap comes up every day, Jason Morrissey, title tours, and they come from all over. Ireland and America and all over the world 
and they stop mm. at our house to take pictures. And I ask, would they send me a flag? Whatever the country is from. Where are you from, sir? I'm from Texas, sir. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Would you send me a flag? And they send me a flag. I actually oh, have brilliant. a flag. I swear to God, I actually have the American, the original American flag. But you're and saying signed, when you put yeah, up the it's Elvis... signed by all the soldiers yeah. of that yeah. camp okay. in the garden. Yeah. So, like, so people who object so, to the Elvis flag must have very suspicious so minds. Don't they, 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 they object to Joe. The Australian flag has had the British Commonwealth on it as well. Ah. People object to that. Oh, God. And so how, do, but how do you know? Did they, did they stop you on the they street? Come here, and they come up and when they're passing and say, listen, for God's sake, what are you doing with that thing up there? Do you know, that has the British flag Commonwealth. Now, we did have a British flag up. Jordan, Prince Charles, and we took it down again because people were getting hot and bothered over it. But the Irish flags, I'll have so many Irish flags in the garden and it'll be hung everywhere, Joe. Everywhere. Yes. I'll be there from the whole house, including the roof. That's but, a fact. But given there's, there's, but, a, there's a hedge beside us that's 20 foot by 40 foot and that'll be done with flags everywhere, green, white and gold. And the garden will be painted green, white and gold as well. So This is for the, the, our, the, the, the women. Yeah. Women's World Cup. Okay. Did you but take? Did the you object. take it down? Is. Did you take down the Elvis flag when you objected? I did, Joe. I did. I, did I, did. Okay. I was. I was a bit disappointed because it was nice flag and it had. Uh, do you know? Do you know Jordan the Civil Confederate War? Remember that <laughs> yeah, the war? Yeah. They had a flag. Robert uh, Lee, Robert E. Lee, and General Grant. Yeah. Now it was the American, you know, and they had the Confederates, and, the I, slave supporters. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually have people send me flags from all over Ireland, all over the world. I have another flag going up actually in the next couple of days. It's from, oh God, I don't know what country it's from. It's some South American country that's going up <laughs> as well. But you took down the, the, the Elvis flag there and then you did, said so to I them... I broke it's, my heart. Yeah. I did now, I swear to God, I did. Just because I didn't want to fall out with anyone, you know. Yeah, but you have a wooden heart, haven't you, Elvis? And you told, <laughs> you told them it was ne- now or never. Joe on a roll in the afternoon on Liveline. And in the morning, Today with Claire Byrne was broadcasting live from Rosslair, County Wexford. Good morning and welcome to the programme. Well, we're coming to you live from the village of Rosslair today in County Wexford. I'm looking across the beach right beside us. The heavy morning fog has just lifted as the sun came up a little earlier. People have been walking their dogs. And there's a morning Tai Chi group in the middle of their practice right beside us here. Now, they have their hats and scarves and coats on beside the sand dunes. And although it's relatively quiet here now, this is a a coastal village looking ahead to a very busy tourist season. The beach beside us will be full. There'll be more families, more dog walking, more sea swimmers. The cafes and restaurants across the road from us here will be bustling, no doubt. And the hotels and the B&Bs will be hives of activity. But the past year has been very different. And this morning we'll be finding out how this community has welcomed its new residents from Ukraine and elsewhere and the pressures that this has put on some aspects of life in the county. Sean Boyce, who you will have heard on the programme many times over the last year, is chair of Rosslair Harbour Friends of Ukraine, which has had a presence at the harbour for nearly 12 months since Russia launched their invasion on the 24th of February last year. And yesterday afternoon, Sean showed me firsthand how all of this works from the moment those people fleeing the war step off the boat and into Ireland for the first time. So, Sean, here we are at the entrance to the reception centre for Ukrainians and we're in the grounds of the, of the port. You might just explain where we are. 
Yeah, you're very welcome to Rossler Harbour, uh, Claire. We're just, as you say, at the entrance of the reception centre. You can see in the distance there the Stena Horizon, which is the vessel that most of the Ukrainian uh, refugees would have arrived on that we have dealt with uh, since they started coming to us a little uh, less than a year ago now. In front of us we can see a large marquee building with uh, some welcome notices in, in English, in Irish of course, and in Ukrainian. Uh, where the folks first see our faces, I suppose, and the faces of the government agencies that they deal with as they make their first steps into the country. And uh, if we walk in towards the, the marquee, then the first people that they meet is the Red Cross. They have a, a small little package, welcome package, for uh, the people as they come in uh, towards the marquee. So, so just to get this right, so they get off the vessel over there and they're brought over here on a coach if they don't have their own cars with them and then they disembark the coach and this is where they walk in through. That's right, yeah. So anyone without transport, as you say, is, is transported by foot passenger coach, really. And they're re reunited with their luggage and any pets they may have will be dealt with in the port cabins just outside behind us and they'll uh, check their pet passports and, and any needs that the pets will have as well because obviously people are coming with as much as they can take um, when they've left Ukraine. And, uh, so that's the Red Cross desk. That's the first thing that we see when we come in. And they, as you said, a little welcome package for them there. That's right, a bottle of water, a packet of potato crisps and, uh, and a smile. You know, as I say, we're the first people that these people are seeing as they enter Ireland. And, and it's nice that, you know, all, as you see all around you, you've got welcome signs in their own language and our language. Um, and, and we're really trying to wrap our arms around them as they come in to the country here. OK, so then we make our way through these uh, barriers. They're like temporary structures in this marquee and I can go left or right here so explain to me what I'm doing here. Yeah so we have uh, seven private booths here and this is where uh, on Garda Síochána operate for immigration clearance and each one of the people will come into one of these booths obviously in family groups if there's kids uh, here which we've seen quite a lot of and they'll have a short interview then to establish their identity any documents they may or may not have and, and the local uh, immigration uh, detail here in the port which operate just adjacent to this marquee on a normal day-to-day -day basis um, they come here on arrival days for Ukrainians and they process them the same as anybody else coming in. Will we move on through then? So we go past emigration and we're into another section here now with lots of uh, separate desks left and right. Yeah, so this is the main administrative area, I suppose, um, after somebody has been given uh, that uh, leave to enter under the Temporary Protection Directive. Over to our right-hand side is where the Department of Justice will operate and they will uh, go through the re remaining paperwork under that directive. And then to the left-hand side of the room we have uh, an area where the Department of Social Welfare would operate from and they will sort out the issue of uh, PPS numbers and any other social issues uh, that, that may need to be addressed. But all the administration is done in this area. As you can see, there's plenty of desks and there's, uh, it's a busy area on an arrival day. So, so I know there are still challenges and we're going to move into the next part of this marquee and you can tell us a little bit about that because accommodation from the very beginning was tough going, wasn't it? Very much so, yeah. We, you know, there was B&B &B owners here locally who, who really dug deep and answered the phone at very strange times of the day and night to us because we needed to get people accommodated very, very quickly because they were very ill or, you know, exhausted from a, a, a long journey across Europe to, to make it to Cherbourg and then to get on a 16-hour ferry trip. So accommodation was difficult. Um, it was 
very much up in the air with iPass from the beginning and then once they outsourced that job to the local authorities, in our case Wexford County Council, we had some excellent dedicated officials who uh, made their home here, as I say, in our half of the tent, mm-hmm. in the civilian kind of uh, end of the tent. And again, we worked very closely with them. Uh, lots of people had to go you know, on long journeys once they left here to, to the west coast of Clare, down to Kerry, you know, up to the north. So it was difficult uh, for us to to make their journey a little bit easier but we worked very closely with them and and in some cases helped to find them accommodation locally. And and Claire asked Sean about protests against refugees. You'll know that people are, we see it on on the streets, there have been protests, people, maybe the view is changing a little bit when it comes to welcoming both refugees seeking international protection, also people coming from Ukraine. Do you see any evidence of that? Not locally here, uh, I must say. You know, people have integrated very well into our community. And don't get me wrong, people have the right to protest. And and a lot of the time it's with good reason and and lack of information. We spoke last week about the lack of information that was going out to people and is going out to people. But here in Roster Harbour, Kiran area, we have uh, been blessed really with the, the, the people that have come into us have really wanted to integrate and be part of our community. We also have uh, uh, another centre up the road with direct provision, so and they integrate very well. And and you know the local GA club and soccer clubs and and all the boxing club, all the other clubs have benefited from really great people. You know coming in and and mixing and integrating with us. And maybe the fact that we are a port village helps with that because we are, you know, used to welcoming people. Uh, not from around here. Now I know that you have some people for me to meet so we'll we'll go and find out who they are and have a chat. So Sean you have two people to introduce me to here who have been in Ireland for almost a year. Who who have we got? Yeah so our new locals as I like to call them Misha and Sophie. Okay you're very welcome thank you very much for talking to us so tell us a little bit about when you came Misha you might start us off when you came and how you you found it here in in Wexford. Oh yeah, to make sure I came to Ireland really early, about two weeks after the war starts. And I can completely tell that was amazing um, introduction of Ireland to me because all the people were so friendly, so nice to me. And I was really disappointed about that uh, in case it's really... After all this situation in Ukraine, I was totally disappointed in the, everything in, in the all part of my life and when I came to Ireland people were really at home because all the people was trying to help me trying to do the best all the all the best I'm really lucky to meet such nice people in such a hard time for us and Sonia what about uh, what about you you came at the same time did you March of last year yeah, we are brother and sister actually. Ah, okay. So we came at the same time, and uh, it was like we were very surprised when they met us here in the Rosler Europort because we were not expecting anything. Like, and they give uh, they the government gave us a hotel for first time. Uh, they gave us food and uh, also uh, these uh, that that you can see here in port now. Uh, it wasn't here when we came. So, but uh, but anyway, people were bringing lots of stuff to our hotel. Lots of volunteers were coming to help us. They were asking if we need something or, like, uh, really helpful people. And do you both come here now to help people who are just arriving? Uh, yeah, the whole summer I was here with my mother and with my brother. Uh, we were sort of helping uh, local volunteers. We were sorting clothes, like 
serving tea and all the stuff needed here we were talking to people and uh, i think it's uh, the the job uh, volunteers are doing here it's very helpful for those who are arriving because people are all the people have different situations and uh, the support they give them it's really important and what about your thoughts of of home and your thoughts about going home what do you think is is going to happen and how do you feel about what's happening in ukraine right now my thoughts about that is really optimistic just in case i i hope i'll follow the best for my country and you, Sonia? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure we can return home this year or next year. No one knows now. But uh, I think everyone wants to go home and we want to to help Ukraine. And But anyway, uh, uh, yeah, I think we all want to say thank you for Ireland, for uh, people who are helping us in this in the, that such terrible situation. You're very welcome and I'm glad to hear that you had a good experience and I hope you continue to enjoy your time in Ireland. Sean, just to bring you back in and, and, and to finish here, it is great to hear that people have had a good experience in Ireland. But even for you and the volunteers here, this, you know, as we move into the one year anniversary and beyond, the structures that you have in place here are better than they were at the very beginning. But do you think now more, even more permanent structures are going to have to go be put in place? I think so, Claire, very much so. And I suppose I may sound like a broken record now, but the plan that I've spoken about now for almost a year, we really need a solid plan led from the top, from government level, because it's not going away. You know, we've another very recent disaster now that's happened in Turkey and Syria. And, you know, things are not great in the other part of the world, but they're not too bad here. So we need a plan to be able to continue to help people and take the unknowns out. Control the controllables and let's get a plan in place. Sean Boyce, Rosslair Harbour Friends of Ukraine Group from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the morning, Ryan Tuberty was remembering the great Bert Bacharach. Bert Bacharach was the ultimate talk singer. He, he couldn't really sing at all. I went to see him, uh, in, I think it was about 2000. David Harvey brought him over to Ireland and very kindly arranged for me to meet Bert Bacharach. I think it was one of the first times I ever did a radio interview with somebody, if I remember correctly. And I had my, I presume it was tape recorder. Was it called Marantz at the time? Tape recorder on my shoulder. And uh, I, was, I was pretty young at that point. And met him, if I remember, it's the Ivy Gardens. That's what it was because he was playing at the National Concert Hall. And I managed to sit down beside him and I'm sitting talking to now I would have been a big lounge fan at the time. And think of all these magnificent songs. I'll play you some of them, some clips of them now. And I interviewed him and he was very softly spoken and his voice was always a little bit shot. And he would be talking like that um, about, you know, Tom Jones and what's new pussycat and what have you. You have one of those voices. And... But he was he was gentle and a gentleman and he massive, I mean, back catalogue. And, you know, he died yesterday, by the way. That's why I'm talking about Bert Backrack. Yeah, you didn't know that. OK, sorry, he died yesterday at the age of 94. I uh, probably should have started with that. That's a real Irish thing. Remember Bert Backrack? Do you remember him now? He was married to you one and had the thing with that. Well, he's dead. Anyway, Bert Backrack uh, passed away. But I was sitting down at the bench talking to him in the Ivy Gardens. And I was so chuffed and so happy. Of course, the, the, the death of the superstar... <laughs> Uh, all roads lead back to me and my story about it. But anyway, I'll try and keep it quick <laughs> before we get to the music. <laughs> With respect to the Bacharachs. Um And I was talking to him 
And we, we finished the interview and I said, thank you very much. No, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Bert. And goodbye. Goodbye. We, I hope we never meet again. No, you don't have to say that, but it was nice to meet you. And I got back to wherever it was and I listened to the tape. I said, he's got a very, he's very softly spoken, but what is that noise? I, in my innocence as a young reporter, very young reporter, I conducted the whole interview beside a waterfall. A very noisy waterfall. So I had whispering Bert Bacharach the Ivy Gardens waterfall and a career that could have withered on the vine there and then. And thankfully, it didn't. And Burt Bacharach went on to be a very successful songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Tuberty team went digging deep into the archives to find this little gem. Well, they've, they've been very quick all of a sudden to uh, find a clip for us this morning of uh, the me and Burt Bacharach by the ill-fated uh, waterfall and, and realising, God, I was a rookie and I was only just starting out and they found, yeah, me and Bert by the waterfall. The star of this piece is not the late Bert Backrack, but the waterfall. So here you are, Bert Backrack comes to Ireland. What sort of a place do you make of this island of ours? Well, I was here once before. Uh, you know, I got a very different picture because I, I was at the K Club. I worked there. I did some concerts. I thought it was beautiful. Um, Dublin itself, I only saw... Very briefly, I came and did a concert at the concert hall, which is just thrilling. And I'm looking forward to it. Um, and there he goes. And that's Bert, myself and the waterfall. Oh, rookie Ryan from the Ryan Tuberty Show. And in the morning, we were waking up to growing numbers of victims of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Here's Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. More than 21,000 people are now known to have died after Monday's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. That's the entire population of a city like Kilkenny or a town like Athlone. Fewer miracle survivors now emerge from the levelled buildings. The living cope as best they can, grieving loved ones and scrambling for survival without shelter, water, fuel or electricity. The World Health organisation fears many survivors could yet lose their lives. Anger too is growing that even buildings many miles from the epicentre of the quake in Turkey collapsed because of poor construction and for that President Erdogan's government will be held accountable. Turkish-based journalist Ruth Mickelson writes for the Guardian newspaper. She's in Adan and we'll talk to her shortly. But first, a baby girl was found alive under the rubble in the arms of her mother in Afrin, northwest Syria. Both her parents and all four of her siblings were killed in the earthquake. Here's a doctor describing little Aya and the condition she was in on arrival when we hear, and then we'll hear from a hospital manager discussing care for her. She arrived on Monday in such a bad state. She had knocks and bruises. She was cold and barely breathing. She has some distant family and until they come, I will treat her like one of my own. Mohammed Hassoud works at a hospital in northwest Syria, not far from the epicentre of the earthquake. He spoke to the BBC about the shortage of medical supplies locally. The medical supplies that we have don't even cover 20% of the needs of people in northern Syria. And of course, the magnitude of the damage because of the earthquake is extremely difficult to deal with, with what we already have. From Morning Ireland, then later, Claire Byrne talked to Alex Thompson, Chief Correspondent with Channel 4 News. And Alex, you have seen people, we have seen the, the footage here, children being rescued from the rubble after spending days buried amid sub-zero temperatures. But as time goes on, we are seeing fewer of those miracles. I've covered earthquakes down the years and it is an extraordinary fact that you do find these babies and toddlers who somehow 
survive in the most unimaginable hellish conditions, 72 hours, even more sometimes, and are pulled alive from the rubble. Um, we've heard of one such instance down in Hatay, um, in the southwestern region of the earthquake zone in Turkey, uh, that has happened uh, overnight. And it is, it is absolutely possible there will be more. This does happen uh, every time in these disasters. That said, um, it is obviously against the trend. We were in Haramanmaraş, a large city uh, in the north, in the eastern sector of, of the Turkish earthquake zone yesterday, and there were a lot of body bags coming out of the rubble, very few people alive of any age. Alex, you mentioned you've covered earthquakes in the past, and I'm not sure how this looks like from that perspective, but every day when we come in to do the programme, the number of people estimated to have died just seems to be increasing very rapidly. How does this compare with others that you've experienced? Well, in terms of perhaps the most salient point there is is in Turkish terms, this now looks to be the worst earthquake uh, ever in terms of the numbers of people killed. Wrapping in the Syrian situation as well, several thousand killed there. We're looking well over the 20,000 mark in terms of confirmed dead. That number will climb. The added factor in here, of course, is hypothermia because temperatures are getting down well below zero in some places, as low as minus five Celsius uh, overnight on the Turkish side. Uh, and indeed, it will be the same on the Syrian side. And of course, because of the civil war, and restrictions of access, which are still happening on the Syrian side, it's very much more difficult to reach people with the necessary um, heavy cutting and heavy lift equipment necessary to get people out of the rubble on, on that Syrian side. So that's all adding into the mix and exacerbating that climbing death toll. Give us a sense, Alex, of where you are now and, and what's happening there. Well, quite interestingly, we've been in a little town called um, Passage this morning. Um, where really they're moving into the next phase. As you go into town, you see two things. A large established camp of tents, winter tents, double thickness uh, plastic tents set up by the government-sponsored NGO in Turkey, which stands ready to meet these kind of disasters because they know the seismic situation that this country sits on. That, and then on the main road, in uh, a traffic, traffic jam largely caused by articulated lorries, convoys of them, bringing aid and equipment into these towns. That's to say the, the situation is there is, is well under control and moving along. And indeed, when you get into town, the piles of rubble, you're not involved in search and rescue. You're involved in just moving this debris out of the way. And in one instance, they were beginning to attack a tower block with a caterpillar, not to find people or retrieve bodies, but to knock it down, because there's going to be an enormous demolition job as well of buildings which are left partially standing, but are obviously completely unsafe. You've come across people, too, who've asked you to be interviewed. What do they want to say? We were accosted by a number of people yesterday. This is in Hauramarash, which is the town we're heading to now. We're driving there right now as I speak. Numbers, a couple of people came up, both reasonably educated, spoke pretty good English. And they wanted us to interview them primarily to get across a plea. And in the way that people have, they, would, they said, I want to say something, I want to say something. And as they did... They address their comments not solely to me, but directly into the lens of the camera. Please, please, please bring us aid. We need more. We need more equipment. We need, we need psychological backup. We need specialist teams, specialist trained people to come into this huge area. Um, and it is a very, very large, large area. You know, you, you're, talk, you're talking about to go east 
to west in the Turkish side, two or three hundred miles. So, you know, you're talking a large area um, and up to 10 million people affected. And that's just on the Turkish side of the border. Alex Thompson from Today with Claire Byrne. And in the afternoon, Ray Darcy was talking to Helen Clark Bennett, team leader of the African Plains in Dublin Zoo, about a rare new arrival. Now, if you're going to Dublin Zoo anytime soon, be on the lookout for their new arrival, a very cute southern white rhinoceros calf. Helen Clark Bennett is the team leader of the African Plains in Dublin Zoo, and she joins us now on the line. How are you doing, Helen? Hi, Ray. Congratulations. Oh, we're delighted, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, there's a lovely picture of it uh, in the Irish Times today. Um, the way she's in full flight. Yes, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it's Very full good, of, actually. Yeah, it's a really good, really good photograph if you haven't seen it. Um, okay, so so y- you haven't named it yet, but you have a house name for her. For her. Yeah, we, we always give them a house name because it can take ages for the competitions to come up and it's, you can't just keep calling it the calf. So, yeah, we have a, our own little pet name. That's Katie. Katie, right. Named after anybody in particular, Katie Taylor or... I can't can't give away any background details. Can't, can't comment. Can't comment. All right. No, okay. No. I'll take that as a yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, so Nyala, is that how you pronounce the mother's name? Nyala is the mother, yeah. Yes. And Shaq is the father. Right. Uh, and uh, how many children have they got? This is their second together. Right. Um, because Nyala is still only a young female, but Shaka has produced a number of calves with Ashanti. Right. Uh, and how many rhinoceri, is there rhinoceroses or rhinoceri have you got in Dublin Zoo? Rhinoceroses are rhinoceri. We have seven now. Right. That brings it to seven, yeah. Are they a herd or what are they? Uh, you can call them a herd or a crash. You know you know the way you have specialist little names for yeah. groups and crashes for rhinos. They're very apt as well. Yeah, I, I, I love that name. I, I, yeah, I prefer to brilliant. call them a crash. Crash of rhinoceros. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what's the gestation period for a rhinoceros? It's a long time. So you're talking 16 months, no problem. Yeah. Right. Um, the month, give or take, on either end. Um, um, and the, it's a very, you know, productive calf that comes out at the end. Surprisingly small when you see the length of the pregnancy, but it's up and running in about, you know, a very short space of time in the wild. There's a beautiful video that I saw today um, with Plinky Piano in the background. Maybe that's why I was so emotional watching it. But, but little, gorgeous, Ka- little Katie nearly looks lamb-like. Like you could say that she's gambling around the the enclosure there with her mother. Yeah, skipping around. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually having the pleasure of watching her outside in the savannah side for the last couple of mornings, and it really does her heart good. Um, yeah. Nayala is so devoted to her, and the cat really keeps her moving. Yeah. So, what's the what's the story? Because I know you're you're part of, and this is part of the European Endangered Species Program, because there are only sixteen thousand of this species left in the world. Um, so, so how does it happen? Chaka and Nayala, they, you know, they have a romantic meal or whatever. Roses are exchanged and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then, how do you know that Nayala is pregnant? You know, we we watch them for the Easter cycle. The Easter is uh, the phase where a female is ready to mate with the male, and he, you know she gives off signs because her, her urine changes colour, shows a little bit more interest in the male, and the male gives off signs. He gets quite anxious to go with her on the days that she's an estrus. Right. If he's with her all the time, he'll be following around, sticking to her really closely. You'd see mounting going on. Right. Um, and then if she doesn't come back into season, then we know our estrus. Then we know she's pregnant. Had something wrong. Um, and then in the past, we'd also have done faecal collections so that we can do hormone testing on them and then we can tell for definite if she's pregnant. Right. And when you know, then it, it, the whole thing changes. You, a lot more attention is given to Nyala from ye. Yeah, we have to watch it closely and make sure that she's eating well. Um, the progression is that you up the feed towards the end, you give calcium 
uh, powder at the end to ensure that it's a safe delivery. Does, does, yeah, there's a lot that goes into the watching and making sure that she's not being harassed by any of the others because you don't want her physically damaged either. Mm. So, yeah, uh, we, we love watching them as well. Though, so after time. 18 months of pregnancy or gestation, uh, out comes yeah. little Katie. Um, and and in, I, I don't know if there's such a chart uh, of how able you know, the, the babies of species are, but it looks to me like rhinoceros must be up towards the top, are they? They're very mobile and they have to be, you know, they have to be able to keep up the herd um, and they're also vulnerable in the early stages. So the, the female takes herself off to a very quiet spot in the wild to have her calf and they like a bit of quiet in the zoo as well. And we watch on camera so that we're not disturbing her in any way and, and Niall has been very kind to us because she gives birth um, not in the middle of the night. Um, so we're, <laughs> this time it was early even the last time it was in the middle of the day. Right. Uh, so she doesn't keep us waiting late into the night. And, and is there a is there a sack or does it come out? Or what, 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 you know, because it's I've... quite quite interesting. So the the female basically is lying down, um, and then just as the the calf comes out, she stands up and whips around, and the calf the, the membrane gets broken around the calf at that point. Right. Um, and then she turns around, and it also means that. If she was in the wild, that she's standing over the calf very quickly, yeah. so that if there was a predator around, she's ready to defend it. Um, but also, it breaks the membrane around the face um, to ensure that it's not suffocating or anything like that. She cleans it off very quickly as well. And really, the calf is up and standing in a half an hour and looking to feed within an hour and a half, no problem. Isn't nature magnificent? Helen Clark Bennett from the Ray Darcy Show. And on the Ryan Tipperty Show, Ryan was catching up with Ellen O'Brien after her appearance on the Conan O'Brien podcast. Oh, here we go. I mean, you you must be sick of talking to skinny chat show hosts at this stage, are you? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> here we go. Well, I was listening to my favourite, uh, most amusing podcast, at least, uh, which is Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend. And I was delighted when he could, he does one where he talks to a fan from around the world. And there you were, Ellen O'Brien from Tullamore chatting away to him. So tell me. Um, how did that happen? Um, it was quite quite random, actually. Um, I just completed the application form in November, mm-hmm. um, sent it off, didn't think any more about it, and then first week in January, I got an email saying, oh, we'd love to have you on. And I kind of went from there. Okay, uh, so you uh, you went on. It, it's kind of a Zoom call, so you got to see everyone and, and have the chats. Yeah, it was very cool. I, I got to go into like the studio virtually and, and talk to all the producers and everything. And what was your, how did, how did it go for you? What did you make of the, the chat? Yeah, it, it was interesting. I suppose you probably know yourself when you're listening to a podcast, you feel like you're part of the conversation anyway, mm. but I was actually part of it that time. So it was quite cool. And what sort of things piqued Conan's interest with you? Um, so obviously the, the whiskey thing. So I'm a tour guide in Tullamore Dew. Uh, shout out to the whole team in Tullamore. <laughs> Um, and um, I suppose that kind of piqued his interest a little bit. Um, that was my question for him, how he took his whiskey, um, which, as you probably heard, yes. he's not a huge fan, but he said he loved Tullamore Dew. So. Thank, thank goodness. You, if you don't get promoted to close to the boss at this stage after that, that <laughs> wonderful plug, uh, I don't know who will be. So you're, you're, you, you do tour guiding at the, at the factory, but you, you're also studying. So tell us a bit about what, you, what else you're doing with yourself. Yeah, so I'm a law student um, in first year in TU Dublin, mm-hmm. um, so I'm near the Phoenix Park. It, it's very cool. I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, so we were talking a little bit about that as well. Because you, this was the point of that is, what do you, what, what do you want to be when you grow up uh, and what, what area of law are you interested in going into? Which I'll ask you now. 
<laughs> well, for the minute, I've kind of got my eye on criminal law, but again, I'm only in first year, so that could change. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying the first year modules at the minute. I thought it was quite, quite funny also how Conan, because you're Alan O'Brien, he was uh, having a go at the, well, let's face it, uh, the, the, the Irish propensity for closeness, shall we say. <laughs> what did you make of that? Um, yeah, well, I, I'm sure we're probably distantly related somewhere along the line. Um, but I think he left, his family left Ireland a couple of hundred years ago. So mm. um, I'm not sure how, how close that connection is. Yeah. But. He's fully, he's fully Irish, as you, as you know, from what he was saying with his DNA test and, and, and everything else. What else do you listen to, Alan, podcast-wise, as a matter of interest? Um, I'm a big fan of the two Johnnies. Oh, I really, really like that podcast. Um, yeah, and obviously Conan O'Brien as well. I, I've been listening for a couple of years. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of it. That's it? You, you like your bit of comedy of a, of a given day and then you're in the... Uh, in the whiskey factory, given the tour acting, I got the sense you like to bring your own little bit of impromptu comedy along the way. Is that right? Doing your your bits, as they say. Yeah, well, the tours are quite small, so they're they're quite personal. So two hours with the same group of people, you kind of have to liven it up a bit. But we do we do have a lot of fun. Um, I have to say, and and obviously a lot of whiskey as well, but mm. a lot of fun. Ellen O'Brien on the Ryan Tipperty Show. And on the live line, sign language featured as part of the Tales from the Holy Well, Damien Dempsey's show at the Abbey, and Nora Kaljo about teaching young children sign language. Yeah, I mentioned um, reaction we were getting to the performance last night at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin. It's Damien Dempsey's show, Tales from the Holy Well. It's booked out, so forget about that. Um, but last night was the signed Irish sign language version of it. In other words, there was an interpreter, sign language interpreter, just off the stage uh, in the Abbey. And apparently it was quite an incredible experience for everyone who was there. Nora Tobin, this has prompted you, you say that um, sign language should be taught in primary schools. Yes, Joe, I do. I believe that children are like sponges at that age and they pick it up so quickly. Okay. But why would they? Would they? How would they use it? Or where? When would they use it? Well, they well they would definitely use it if they meet a deaf person. Yeah. And um, like it does enhance your career, I have to say. There's so many openings when you can sign language. It is the second official language in Ireland. Very, very good point. Very good point. And I just find it has enhanced my life so much. There's so many deaf people, interesting deaf people, and to talk to and I mean they rely on talking through their hands if you have that Mm -hmm. language you can get to know them and get their proper personality instead of just nodding and and trying to understand what they're saying through writing down or lip reading it's just an amazing language and apart from that obvious good reason but was there any other reason why you learned it well my daughter Ashling is 37. Okay. Um, she uses sign language. We mm-hmm. were discouraged back in the day to use it because they wanted children to speak through oralism in her okay. particular class. Now, in her particular class, she went to St. Mary's School for the Deaf. So we were discouraged from using sign because they okay. wanted them to speak. Yeah. So when she was 12... Yeah. Obviously, before that, we had picked up little bits of sign and we could okay. always communicate with our daughter, but her friends 
we couldn't communicate with them. So I brought her to Deaf Scouts, which she wanted to join, and I couldn't communicate with anybody there. Everybody was deaf. All right. And I just said, right, that's it. I don't care what they've told us. We're, we're learning sign language. Okay. And it just and was opened it, a whole new world. And was it hard to learn? Not at all, Joe. Wow. If you want to learn it, you learn it. You just, like any class. I was in my 40s and I embraced it. My husband went as well and my son learned sign language. So it's just, no, it's not hard at all. And it's, it's have, have you been at a show, a theatre, music or a musical or a concert where there's been a signer? Yes, I have. I've Well, I mean... Everywhere I go, there's sign language. I go with Ashling a lot of oh, places. Okay, and it, it would, would a lot of places do? Say there is a run of a musical or a play, would a lot of places do have one night, as the Abbey did last night, for with a signer, with a professional signer? Yeah, I haven't really, Joe, been to much stuff like that. Okay. Well, but I, when there is sign language, yeah, we would try to go. She's excluded from a lot of... She doesn't go to the cinema... You know, okay, there's so many yeah. things she can't go to. So, and does Ashley have children? She has a baby. Poppy is 15 months old. Okay. And Poppy is hearing. Okay. Both her parents are deaf. Okay. So we've been teaching Poppy sign language since she was six months old. Wow. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. And she, she would speak English as well in terms of yes, school and everything, yeah. Yeah, but she's got to be able to communicate to her parents. Yeah, of course. Fully. So we all decided, well, Ashling and James, that's what they wanted. So we totally embraced it. And Joe then spoke to Amanda Coogan, who was at the Damien Dempsey performance at the Abbey. She was signing on stage. Well, the, well, looking at our calls here about you, because I mentioned your name earlier on, um, you, you, you should be called a superstar because uh, last <laughs> night and I was there, the performance was mesmerising. How did you prepare for such a show that you stood there for two hours, short break in the middle, you stood there for two hours, you signed every word that Damien Dempsey spoke, you signed every word that he sang. And um, how did you prepare for that? It was an absolute joy. I am a tremendously huge fan of Damien Dempsey. Okay. So actually when the Abbey were putting it on, I... Uh, begged them. Could I please do this? Could I please do this? Okay. So I get the script um, about two... I got I got the script about two weeks ago and, of course, I knew the songs uh, anyway uh, okay. as, as a fan. And I just... You just kind of listen and prepare and think about the translation because what I want to... For me, the deaf audience or the sign language users mm-hmm. who come to... Experience the theatre piece. I want them to have the same experience as the hearing people there. Okay. And you know, Damo's music and the stories he's telling yeah. on the Abbey stage are so powerful, and they're so powerful about overcoming trauma and be like mm-hmm. enduring and being positive within a, a maybe a difficult life experience. And this. Is we all we we all know that no one has a perfect life. Everyone yeah, wants yeah. to have that brilliant um, uh, positive outlook out of 
uh, out of maybe traumatic experiences. So I'm always looking at it and I'm saying, how would how how how, how do we say that in in the deaf community? How do okay. we uh, put across those concepts? So I uh, had the absolute joy and pleasure of uh, preparing beautifully. It's such a great job. I should say that. But Amanda, how long were you given to prepare for last night? About, I suppose, about two weeks. But I'd be doing it in between other jobs, you know. But over the last couple of days, really since Monday, I was full-time preparing this. Because because you're there, you were there last. It's just one, and um, it's one performance per run, is it? That the Abbey That's did. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. The Abbey, uh, absolutely. It's brilliant, brilliant, isn't it? As our national theatre to open yeah. its doors and welcome, first of all, Irish Sign Language into the Abbey, but also then bringing deaf um, uh, theatre goers and making their plays success, their production successful. They're absolutely wonderful, and it's a brilliant thing that our National Theatre are supporting it okay, uh, just, so much. This is just one call about you, uh, I, I read out, because I don't know the name of the reader. Have, I have been lucky enough to work with Amanda Coogan. She is a national treasure. Be very careful. <laughs> Be very careful of that moniker, Amanda, <laughs> would you please? So the whole thing has gone off my screen now, unfortunately. Um, uh, well, you, uh, here we go again. She, you're considered <laughs> no, you're considered the best in the world at what you do because you're a performance artist. You're a member of Abstana. What's uh, Aistana? Aistana. That's a spelling Aistana, show. Yeah. That's a spelling show. A member of Aistana. She's a full retrospective of her work at around age sixteen, at Emma, and she's even been on a stamp. Oh, yeah, that's right. She, <laughs> she brings Oops, brilliant. <laughs> she, you bring Irish sign language to the next level, uses her body to communicate, which you did last night, in a way words alone could, never could. She could sign. She could sign the phone book and make it mesmerising. So, um, and, uh, Amanda, now, Damien, OK, a lot of it is ad-libbed, is it not? With Damien. A bit. I, I, I'm completely flabbergasted whoever sent that in. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm on the floor. Um, thank you very much. And I'm mortified and I have the whole imposter syndrome. But, you know, Damo, you go with the flow. When you're, when you're preparing for uh, a theatre piece like that, you, you, you have it all so well. And I, I almost feel like I'm a, a boxer, to use that term. Yeah. So I'm on my toes and I'm ready. I'm yeah. ready, I'm ready. I need to just go with everything. Yeah. You know, you're so highly attuned to listening, translating, listening, translating in those ways. So, yeah, it, the, all the ad-libbing and there's a bit of audience participation as well. Yeah. I, I just love all that. And how... Uh, do, do you, you you must appreciate? Sorry, one you do know. I try to explain maybe why people hearing by people who could hear last night were so mesmerised by your performance as well. I, I, just it, I, I, it, it just added so, just added so much to the night. Did it? Yes, it did. Uh, well, I'm saying that from from my own point of view. I really. I really thought it was... Amanda Coogan on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne coming live from Rosslare, 
travel writer Fionn Davenport was extolling the virtues of the sunny southeast. So, so listen, um, sunny southeast is a great starting point for this region, isn't it? Is it sunniest, well deserved? driest part of the country. Yeah, well, look, um, it is. It is. Beautiful well, it day. is. And, you know, and, and people can go, oh, you know, it's hardly the south of France. It's hardly the sunshine. But it is. It is the driest and sunniest part statistically um so wexford and kind of extending into into east waterford um it is and you know and and as a dub this has you know the thousand all the years where people had come down to down on their holidays to places like Kilmuckridge or Cahor or whatever and and it was it's tied up in all of that did you do it um i've done it once i think when you see, were a child see I, my mother's italian so that's where you went. Yeah, so we kind of go. But I have been down with friends who had, um, you know, and there was always, and I noticed that friends, there would be like this co- competition between the various um, uh, caravan parks. It's like, no, this one's better and that one's better. And then there was a Pirate's Cove. And this is going back a while now, yeah. back to the 80s and, and early 90s. But um, but it is, and it is the perennial favourite for many a holidaymaker because the, the, other than the fact that it's, it, you know, pretty sunny, pretty dry you've got five blue flag beaches that run or beaches that run more or less the whole coastline from south wicklow right around to waterford um like the one here is lovely like and, and i just before i came on i just had a look out and looked at those people doing swimming and i was like this is beautiful like and on a sunny day listen when we came here this morning oh. people out doing tai chi it was Really, really mesmerising. I heard. To yeah, watch. I was listening to on the Fabulous. radio, and it has that. So, and the most famous beach for whatever reason is Curraclough in in Wexford, and in part is because lots of people think that this is where they filmed sa- Saving Private Ryan, but it's not. It's Balnesker is where they actually did the filming, but it's all part. But you have a nature reserve that backs onto Curraclough, and it's really beautiful, and it's that part of the county that people perhaps don't pay a huge amount of attention to. Is is like these wonderful kind of natural wildlife centres, um, and that are I think part of the charm of coming down here, mm. as well as the amusements and the food and the ice creams and the ninety nines and the dry robes. What about those thing. hidden treasures? I mean, they're the ones that everyone wants to know about. Yeah. So that they then become packed. Okay, well, I don't know if there's... See, the thing is, there's very little hidden about Wexford. That's the point. And so for me, Kilmore Quay is gorgeous. So if you wrap around the coast a little bit, you get to Kilmore Quay. So Little Beach by the harbour is very nice with families. It's a very good family beach. Beyond Davenport from today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself, till next time.